I think about what an important part music plays in our worship of God. Someone brought me a CD this morning of uh, some folks to listen to. I've got it here in my Bible case. I'm looking forward to listening to that. But thinking about music, I think about the first part of this chapter where we find joy in heaven and we find the heavenly host all in praise of the Lord. You know, I guess it'll never be that way till we get there. There are a lot of folks here on earth that just seems like regardless of what you do, they just don't have a heart for expressing themselves in song. But there will not be anyone in heaven that feels that way. Everybody in heaven is going to burst forth in praise to the Lord. And so in this chapter, as I said, we see both joy and judgment. You know, that really shouldn't surprise us because the Bible is made up of contrast, good, evil, God, Satan, heaven, hell, and so forth. And here in this chapter, we find those two extremes. And beginning in verse number 1, down through verse number 10, he speaks about joy in heaven. And he starts here by speaking about the multitude's praise in the first six verses. And after these things... Surely I don't need to go back over chapter 17 and chapter 18 where it speaks about the destruction of Babylon and we've talked about what that means. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever, and the four and the twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye servants, and all ye that fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now notice, here in the praise of the multitudes, I want you to notice that the number of the people is expressed in verse number 1 like this. Much people. Much people. In Revelation chapter 7 and verse number 9, you'll remember that he said, And after this I beheld in lo a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. So this speaks about the great many people that will be in heaven in that day. Now maybe you're thinking to yourself, but 
But I, I thought there, I thought that we Christians are in the minority there, that there's just going to be a handful of people saved. You know, the Bible talks about straight is the gate and narrow is the way and few there be, you know, that enters therein. And, and I've often mentioned the fact that we are in the minority. There's only a few people saved, but what we don't realize is what's going to happen during the tribulation period. There's going to be an explosion of evangelism in that time because there will be 144,000 Jews that have been converted and they are sealed and protected and sent forth among all of the nations on the earth. And during the most terrible time on earth, the greatest number of people ever known will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. So even out of that horrific time here upon the earth, God is going to accomplish the greatest harvest of souls ever. And so don't get the idea that there's only going to be us four and no more sitting up there in heaven. There are going to be great multitudes of people that have been saved in heaven. And that's what we're looking at. We see the number, but notice the nature the nature of their praise, and he uses four words to express the nature of their praise as they say salvation, glory, honor, and power. Uh, these, these are things for which we praise the Lord. And then notice the nobility of their praise. It's rooted and grounded in the fact that God's judgments are true and righteous. Verse number 2, they are true and righteous. Sort of tongue-in-cheek, I said this morning, you know, some might surmise that in judging of Israel that God had lost His cool. He lost His temper. He let things get out of hand, and all of a sudden, you know, He loses His temper and He begins to punish the people. Well, that's never the case. God always does what He does out of love and with great wisdom. And true and righteous are all of the judgments of the Lord. He makes no mistakes regardless of what He's doing. He says the judgments of God are true and righteous. But then notice the noise, not just the number and the nature and the nobility of it, but the noise in verse number 6. He says, "...as the voice of many waters and as the voice of many thunderings." I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think about standing perhaps at the, you know, at the base of Niagara Falls and that mighty falls as it's rolling over and the water churning up and the noise is so loud that you can't hear yourself talk. And, and this is the picture. It's as, as though you're caught in a thunderstorm or a, a, a great waterfall or something. And so, you, you know, as so many times we think, well, we need to, be dignified and make sure that we don't say amen too loud or uh, that we, you know, we don't get too excited. And But boy, I'll tell you, we're going to be excited in heaven. Amen. I, I mean, you know, so many people talk about that and yet you go back to the Psalms and where it talks about worshiping the Lord and making a joyful noise unto the Lord. And, and, and literally what that means is an ear-splitting sound. Somebody says, oh, but it just upsets me when I hear somebody, you know, scream out, Amen! Or, Hallelujah! Just, it just, oh, that just grates on my nerves. Well, I like that a lot better than somebody sitting there so quiet that you could go to sleep, you know, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't ever bother you. And, and so, you know, in heaven, 
look, it's going to be a noisy place in heaven. Amen? Yeah, because we're going to be praising the Lord. Now, notice not only the multitude's praise, but notice the marriage of the Lamb in verse 7 and 8. And let us be glad and rejoice. Well, we've been talking about that. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is coming, for his, his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now notice the place of this marriage. And remember, this is a heavenly scene, Right? Uh, This is a picture in heaven. We'll get down to earth here in a little while. But while judgment is being poured out upon earth, we find this taking place in heaven. So this automatically rules out the idea of a general resurrection. Uh, There are a lot of people who believe that there's going to be a resurrection, but everybody, the saved and the unsaved, will all be resurrected at the same time, and then God's going to pick and choose, you know, and weigh all of their works on the scales of justice, and then He'll take some and reject some. But the Bible teaches that there's going to be different resurrections. And here you have some in heaven, and you have some people still on earth at this time, So this is a heavenly scene, but notice the period. This takes place after the judgment seat of Christ, and I'll prove that in just a minute. It's after the judgment seat of Christ when the saints are rewarded. Now, maybe I need to go over this because a lot of folks, maybe new Christians, are not familiar with this. When we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, We're talking about the time and the place when God's people will be rewarded for the good works they've done. That's not the thing that saves them. That's not the thing that secures their forgiveness and gets them into heaven. But because they've been saved and they invest their life in serving God... They will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. If, as Christians, you've heard people say, well, we're we're all saved. It doesn't make any difference. We're all going to go to heaven. So what's the difference, you know, whether I, you know, whether I work and do a lot of stuff for the Lord or whether I don't do anything because we're all going to heaven? Well, if all you're interested in is is in heaven, uh, you'd be absolutely right. If that's all you care about, just getting into heaven. I don't know about you, I want to be have some rewards waiting for me when I get there. And, and so there is a big difference. There's different degrees of glory in heaven. There are different rewards, different crowns that we can win in heaven. And it'll make a difference for all of eternity. But that's decided at the judgment seat of Christ, where only the Christians are examined and their works are examined in that day, and they are rewarded. Now, when we talk about the unsaved... We're talking about the great white throne judgment, and we'll get to that in a different message. And that's where the unsaved stand before the Lord for their final sentence before they're cast into the lake of fire. But whenever we go back to where we are here in this story, and we see the celebrating going on in heaven, please understand that this the time period is is after the saints have been rewarded and before that final day. Notice verse number 7 again. It says, His wife hath made herself ready. 
Now, that could not speak about salvation, right? Because we don't make ourselves ready in salvation. We're saved by grace through faith, the Bible says. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And so this doesn't have anything to do with them making themselves ready as though they got there some way on their own. Notice his wife hath made herself ready. And notice he says in verse number 8, the righteousness of the saints. And that particular word righteousness there literally means righteous deeds. That's going to be the basis for the rewards that we receive. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. You know, there were those that they build their life out of hay, wood, and stubble. And, and, and others out of the gold and the silver and the precious stone, things that will endure. And at the judgment seat of Christ, those that have invested their life, you know, in things that won't endure, they're going to end up losing all of those rewards that they could have had. So it makes a difference how you live. And he says that the bride has made herself ready. This is the righteousness of the saints. But look at verse number 7 again. In this phrase, it says, His wife. His wife. This speaks about the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 2, Paul says to the church there, I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So he's speaking about the bride of Christ. But who's he talking to? He's talking to the church at Corinth. That is a local, visible assembly of baptized believers. So whatever you think about, uh, this matter, the fact is that whenever the Bible talks about the bride of Christ, it's talking about the Lord's church. That might not seem to be significant to you right now, but you'll see a bit later perhaps that it is very important. And again, it makes a difference how you live after you've been saved. So we see the multitude's praise and the marriage of the Lamb But now verse number 9 and 10, our attention is called to the marriage supper. Verse 9, And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now let me help you out a bit here when we talk about the marriage supper. We need to understand that in ancient times, the marriage consisted basically of three elements. First of all, there was the original contract that was agreed upon by the parents of the two parties. Uh, the two parties would be maybe at a very young age. They're not old enough to get married as we would think of marriage. And so the marriage was actually prearranged by the parents, and a dowry was paid, a contract was entered into between them, And legally, in the eyes of the world, this couple was already married, although it had not been consummated. They're legally married. Now, that that goes back to Mary and Joseph, you'll remember. Uh, 
you know, a lot of times we might think of it today as the engagement period. But the espousal was much more important than what we think of as the engagement period because you can have an engagement without being legally married. But, but Mary was legally married to Joseph in that day, but the marriage had not been consummated yet. Now, in those days, you had the agreement between the parents. And then at a given time, the bridegroom would meet with all of his friends, and there would be a celebration to where he went to the bride's house, went to where she was, and got her. And then the third stage took part, where he took his new bride and the marriage procession as they followed along celebrating, and they go to his house now, and you have the celebration, and the marriage supper. Now, it ought to be easy for everyone to figure out this is a perfect picture of what is going to happen in that day when Jesus comes. And that's what we're reading about right here. He said the marriage of the Lamb is come. We're reading about it right here. Because the Lord is going to come and to receive His bride unto Himself and take us where? To, to his own house, to the Father's house. In ancient times, it was a very common practice. To, you know, whenever the young man got married, he went and got his bride. He brought the bride to the Father's house. And then he built a room onto the house, added an addition, and that's where they lived. Now, the interesting thing about this, as you read through here, you'll notice as to the purpose of this marriage supper, all of the attention is focused on the bridegroom, not the bride. You know, we got it reversed today. The bride gets the bulk of the attention, and that's okay. I'm not complaining about that. We give the bride most of the attention, right? I mean, everything, everything's got to suit the bride, and that's okay. That's all right. But boy, in that day, it's going to be the bridegroom that's going to get all of the attention because Jesus will be the center of attention. Now, I want you to think with me for a few minutes about, about the people who are present here at this supper. Well, there's the bridegroom, that's Christ. There can be no doubt about that. The Bible makes that perfectly clear. There's the bride. The bride consists of the born-again members of true churches. Now, we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. You know, the Bible talks about the church being the body of Christ. talks about it being a building, the habitation of God. And it also talks about the church as being a uh, the bride of Christ. And that's what Paul was referring to in the verse we read a while ago. I've espoused you, he said, you know, to, to Christ. And so, the, as the church is the bride... Now, in addition to that, we find that there are the friends, the friends of the bridegroom. Well, when we read through the Bible, and if we let the Bible interpret itself, we go to John chapter 3 and verse number 29, and lo and behold, John the Baptist is called what? He's called the friend of the bridegroom there. And so he, he is the friend. You know, we have our best man. Well, John the Baptist is going to be the friend of the bridegroom in that day, but I want you to notice there are guests here. There are guests. 
Now, who are these people? Boy, I tell you, preachers have debated this long and hard for, for centuries. Who are these people? I, I don't have time to really jump off into this and do a detailed study, but if you want me to sum up what I believe about it uh, in... In, in just a few words, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Well, I'm going to do it whether you want me to or not. But I, I can remember several years ago, Daryl Sparks was uh, Daryl Sparks was my uh, pastor's assistant. He had just graduated from college, and and he'd been raised in the church there, and and so uh, Daryl was helping me and. Uh, I'll never forget, there was a church just out north of Cincinnati, and they wanted him to come out and preach in view of a call. And the first thing they said, because they knew there was this connection with me, first thing they said was, we don't want any of these Baptist briders like Brother Stone. Now, I know some of that doesn't make any sense at all. But some of us have got the label of being a Baptist brider and... There's a reason for it. We are. We are. We're just that. We believe in a Baptist bride. In other words, we believe that the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ is made up of the true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where people get confused. There are a lot of folks have the idea, and you hear people talk about it all of the time, well, all, all of us were all a part of the family of God. Well, you know, that's well and good, uh, you know. As saved people, we're all a part of God's family. You've got that right. But there's a difference between God's family and the Lord's church. There's a big difference. Back during the Reformation, whenever Luther was trying to justify his split from the Catholic church, and he knew that he was on the horns of a dilemma, and you've got to explain this. You can't just walk away because all of these years, you know, you've been teaching and believing and that this is the true church, and I'm leaving the church. And somebody asked him about that. Well, where is the church? He said, well, oh, the church is, the church is invisible. It's universal. It's made up of, you know, all believers everywhere. And that, that's why I say so many times, folks, look, we're Baptists. We are not Protestants. Don't put us in that group. We were protesting the heresy of Rome long before Luther was ever born. We're not Protestants. Now, when we talk about the Lord's church, the, the Greek word translated into the English word church is ekklesia. It means a called out assembly. A called out assembly. Christ said, upon this rock will I build my church, right? We know all of those verses related to it. And, and, and so people come along and say, yeah, but the church is made up of all of the saved people. Not, you know, not just a few, not just you Baptists, but all saved people. Well, if that's true, who are the guests here? Do you reckon they invited some unsaved people to heaven? Of course not. These have got to be saved people, but they're not a part of the bride. They are guests at the marriage supper. So there has to be a distinction. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, there is one body, 
And automatically somebody says, oh yeah, there's only one body, and that body is the universal invisible church. You know, I feel like telling those people that believe in that, the next time you're sick and you need a visit from the pastor, call the pastor of the universal invisible church. Let him come and help you. Amen? Why do they keep calling those of us that are pastors of a local visible church? So what Paul is saying is, he's saying there is only one kind of body. So there can't be two. There can't be one that is universal and invisible and one that is local and visible. There has to be only one kind of church. So when we think about the bride, it's important that we understand that as members of the Lord's true church... And by the way, we can go back in history to a time when there were true churches that believed exactly what we do on all of the, all of the cardinal doctrines of the faith, but they were not called Baptists. So please don't go away from here thinking that Brother Stone thinks only Baptists are going to be in heaven or only Baptists to be part of the bride. I'm saying it has to be a true church, whatever it's called. Whatever the name of it, it has to be a true church. That means, that simply means that it is a church that is organized under the authority of another church. It's a church that believes in the, in the, the doctrines pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ that is correct in its doctrine and scriptural in its practice and the members of a true church. Those are the ones that make up the bride of Christ. Now, you can go to heaven and not be a part of the bride of Christ. You can get saved, you know, and just, you know, just not join the church. Somebody says, well, it doesn't make a difference whether I'm baptized or not. Baptism doesn't save me. So what's the difference whether I get baptized or not? Well, it's all according to what you're looking forward to when you get to heaven. Amen. And I want to be a part of the bride of Christ. I want to be rewarded for the things that I've done here upon this earth. So we see this glorious celebration of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we come to verse 11. And while all of that's going on in heaven, notice what happens here on earth. Verse number 11, And I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Anybody want to guess who that is? Wow, that's easy, right? And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen and white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he had on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords." In light of that, and we don't have time to look at all of the details, but in light of that, because this is leading up to that last great battle there at Armageddon. And so there's some things that we need to keep in mind. During the tribulation period, there are going to be four 
great kingdoms here upon this earth. There's the Federation of Nations. We've talked about that. Uh, we, some people call it the revived Roman Empire, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. We've been talking about that for the last three or four weeks. The Federation of Nations, that's one huge empire made up of these ten nations. But then in addition to that, there's the Northern Confederacy. And if you go read Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, there's no doubt about it, that's Russia and her allies. Are you getting the picture? That's two. And then we, we look in, in, in Revelation again, chapter number 16, and there's the kings of the east mentioned there. I don't know who all that involves. China, Japan. And then, the, then he mentions in Daniel chapter 11, the king of the south. That will perhaps be some North African power. I don't know. But I know that there is this power struggle going on and these four empires at that time. Palestine, first of all, is going to be invaded by the Northern Confederacy. That's Russia and her allies. And if you've never read it, you need to do a thorough study of Ezekiel 38 and 39 when Russia comes down from the north against Israel. When that happens, when that happens, the Antichrist and the Federation of Nations, they're going to come out against uh, this invasion of Palestine. Going to protect Israel, protect their interests there or whatever. After that, the kings of the east invade Palestine. Do you remember in chapter number 16, it talked about the great river Euphrates being dried up to prepare the way of the kings of the east. So here they come all of a sudden. And that brings us to the fourth, and that is the, uh, the, the king of the south. And then in chapter number 16 again, we see the great battle of Armageddon as it takes place that we've already talked about. But notice how this begins. Notice what leads up to this. Verse number 11, we see the advent of Christ, the appearing of Christ, the coming of Christ. Now, remember, whenever Jesus comes at the rapture, He comes in the clouds of the air. It doesn't talk about Him coming literally to this earth. It doesn't say His feet touch the earth. He comes in the clouds of the air. We're called up together to be with Him. That's what we call the rapture. But after that, at the end of the tribulation period, there is the revelation. That's the advent that he's talking about here when the Lamb of God comes back, this time as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. This time he comes back to bring judgment upon the ungodly. And notice his appearance. We see his advent and we see his appearance here in these verses and it talks about in very descriptive terms that you just can't miss in verse number 12 his eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but himself and he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood and so forth that we just read again it's speaking about Christ and it's undeniable notice his armies in verse number 14 Remember I said that when He comes the first time, He comes for us. When He comes the next time, He comes with us, with His people, bringing His armies with Him in chapter or verse number 14. 
Now notice verse 15 and 16, we see his authority. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. He's going to exercise his authority in that day. He has a sharp sword in his mouth. What in the world would that be? Well, again, let's let the Bible interpret what the Bible means. That sharpened two-edged sword is what? The Word of God. And Jesus is described as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the Word of God. And He, in fact, listen, He was the Creator of heaven and earth. I mean, this earth belongs to Him. And He's going to come back and claim His property in that day. And we'll be with Him, and He'll exert His authority over the earth. You know, today in our battles where the leaders merely observe and command their troops, and in that day Jesus is going forth as the captain that never lost the battle and going to destroy the armies of Satan while we look on. I mean, we're going, but he's the one doing the fighting. Now, verse 17, down through the end of the chapter, we see the avenging of Christ. And it says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all of the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat of the flesh of kings, and flesh of captains, and flesh of mighty men, and flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image." These both were cast alive into the lake burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all of the fowls were filled with their flesh. For there is not one bit of trouble in understanding anything that is written there. I don't need to make any reference to the meaning of Greek words. I don't need to call in the great scholars that have lived, you know, down through the ages and have them interpret that for you. That is as clear as the nose on your face. The only problem with all of this here is the unbelieving Christ-rejectors who despise the truth of God's Word. And it is just so amazing to me that even in that day, to think after all of that, that Satan could muster up an army, all of these armies joining together. We're talking about these four great superpowers the king of the south and the kings of the east and the northern confederation and the federation of nations, and here they are all gathered themselves for what? To fight against the Lord. You see, man just never stops resisting God. Man just refuses to yield to God, and as a result of that, uh, judgment falls upon them. I, I said this morning... 
If you die and go to hell, you don't have anybody to blame but yourself. You can't blame me. You can't blame Brother Kenneth. You can't blame your Sunday school teacher. You can't blame anybody else. Because you've already heard about the saving grace of God and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've already heard about that. You've already had opportunity. You can't blame anyone else. And you can go on rejecting God. But listen, what we're doing here as we read this tonight, we're reading what the final chapter is going to be. And we win and they lose. Amen. And God prevails. And the Bible says... Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords and He's going to reign supreme in that day. There will be no more elections. There will be no more trying to get our party, you know, in control of the White House. There will be no, no more looking for some hero to come on the scene and uh, to save us and uh, give us direction because in that day... Jesus is going to rule, and notice, it's with a rod of iron. There's going to be no diplomatic efforts, you know, to accommodate the feelings and the philosophies of the different nations. It's just going to be, this is the way it is, and that's it. Amen? And He has a right to do that. That's what we forget sometimes. Sometimes we think, well, what gives God the right? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Shall the thing that is made... You know, shall the vessel say to the potter, Why hast thou made me thus? Shall we as the vessel say to God, You don't have any right to do that? Oh, no. Listen, God has every right to do as He pleases. And in that day, judgment's going to fall. So, I'm, we've all got a choice. We can be a part of the judgment that's to come, or we can be among those enjoying heaven Amen. Your choice. Your choice. I hope you make the right one. And I suspect nearly everybody here tonight would say, well, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be rejoicing with them. But you need to think about the judgment seat of Christ. You need to think about the rewards that you could lose if you don't serve God while you're here. It makes a difference for eternity. So let's, let's do everything within our power to build our life, as it were, out of the gold and the silver and the precious stone, the things that will endure instead of the things that are going to be destroyed. Let's stand together. Father, we thank You tonight for the wonderful privilege we have, not only of being able to call You our Father, to know that we're saved, but the glorious opportunity that we have to live our lives here in such a way that will make a difference for all of eternity. And Lord, I pray that You'll help us to resolve in our heart this very night to lay up treasures in heaven rather than the things of this earth. Lord, may we keep our focus there. May we do all that, that we can and apply ourselves and, and put everything we've got into the effort of, of soul living that one day as we stand before You to receive those rewards that we might have crowns that have been won that we can cast down at the dear feet of our blessed Savior. And Lord, just to be able to hear Him to say, Well done, Thou good and faithful servant. That's the desire of our heart. May that be the purpose for our living tonight. And Lord, if there's someone here that's never trusted Christ as their Savior, I pray this very night that they might 
look to Jesus and be saved. For we pray in His name. Amen.